0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Dan Diamond, a national health reporter here at The Post. The World Health Organization last month declared that monkeypox was a public health emergency of international concern. As of today, there are more than 31,000 global cases and more than 11,000 here in the United States. I'm joined today by Dr. Rosamond Lewis. She's the World Health Organization's lead on monkeypox. She's going to help us make sense of the current situation. Dr. Lewis, welcome to Washington Post Live.
1: Thank you, Dan, hello.
0: Let's start with some local perspective on the global health fight. The United States currently represents about one third of global monkeypox cases. Why do you think the case count in the United States is so high and has been going up so rapidly compared to other countries?
1: Well, the case count has been going up rapidly in in a number of countries, if you see at different points in time. So the first countries where cases really rose very quickly were, of course, the United Kingdom, Spain, and Portugal. That was followed by Canada and then uh, France as well. And Brazil is concerning now. So yes, the United States of America is a country that has a concerning situation at the moment. It's not the only one though.
0: I think part of my question, Dr. Lewis, is we are coming off two years where the United States has become the global leader in confirmed COVID cases. Now we're the global leader in confirmed monkeypox cases. You're a global health expert. What are we doing wrong here in the States?
1: I think we'd prefer to talk about what we're doing right. So the important things are information, communication, testing, contact tracing. There are many different aspects of the response that we can talk about. And those are accessible in different ways in different countries. And so different countries may have uh, challenges regarding uh, testing, for example. And the United States is one country that has, in fact, responded by expanding its uh, testing capacity from um, public uh, health uh, laboratories only to also include commercial laboratories. Uh, companies. So, so this every country has to find its own way. It has to find uh, following the recommendations of the World Health Organization issued following the public health emergency of international concern. And there are many different strategies. It's only by employing all strategies together. And this may be one of the challenges because in countries that have a federal system, uh, states, provinces, or other uh, you know ways in which the jurisdictions happen at different levels, then it's not always as straightforward as for countries which have um, one one health system, for example.
0: We we do have that fragmented system here in the States. So to your point, as you're looking around the globe and you're seeing different countries employ those different strategies and hopefully all of them, is there a country that you might hold up? Is there an example of a strategy that you'd like to see replicated in more places around the globe?
1: There are three things that are critical in this outbreak. The first is information. The second is action. And the third is evidence-gathering. So in in terms of information, it's really important for those who are most at risk to have the information they need to have, which is why we've talked a lot about fighting stigma, reducing stigma, avoiding discrimination uh, for all countries, um, but also for countries where uh, certain activities may be criminalized, for example, reaching people with the information they need to appreciate their own risk and protect themselves. The second one is action. So there are many things we can talk about in action. We've already touched on several of them. Rapid detection of cases, isolation in the first instance, contact tracing, again information to contacts, and we're available vaccines and treatments. And then last one is evidence. There's a lot we still don't know about what's happening. So although monkeypox is not a new disease and orthopox viruses are not new, smallpox was one of those. There is still a whole lot we have to learn. So we can't assume that we have all the answers already. We need to collect the evidence and the information we need to continue to fine-tune our, our uh, response.
0: Let's use the rubric that you just suggested. So communication, evidence, uh, and, and in the middle of strategies. So let's let's talk a little bit about communication. Monkeypox has been spreading disproportionately in gay men uh, with multiple sexual partners. Dr. Tedros, the head of the World Health Organization last month, issued a warning calling on gay men to temporarily limit the number of sexual partners. In retrospect, Dr. Lewis, do you wish that those warnings had come earlier, had been more direct uh, to stave off potential outbreaks earlier this summer?
1: We move with the information as fast as we can at the time that we can um, release that information or, or share it. So in the early days, it wasn't entirely clear, but it became clear quite quickly that those who are at risk are those who have uh, multiple sexual partners. For example, it's not the fact that someone is gay puts them at risk. Uh, there are, you know, it's though it's it's perhaps having um, there there were some amplifying events where people met together in in large. Uh, Gatherings, social gatherings, or, or smaller uh, parties where there's sex on premises—it's really now we're trying to understand better that it's about, it's about multiple contacts, casual contacts, um, and uh, contact tracing has been difficult for some countries for some of those reasons. So the the importance of the communication aspect is to really appreciate. Uh, you know, what is an individual's risk? Can each individual really appreciate, is there a way that I can reduce my risk by reducing the number of partners, by uh, changing uh, the activities that we engage in, by um, changing some of the very sexual activities that we engage in?
0: Here in the United States, I I think there are more than 95% of cases in gay men. Is that roughly the case around the globe? Are you seeing a different trend in the data that you have?
1: No, the information we have has been very consistent, and it's uh, that 99% of cases are still in men. When you think about it, that's quite extraordinary for an infectious disease. We don't normally see that kind of um gender disparity in, in an infectious disease. So on the one hand, there are concerns that some of it may be under ascertainment, that there may be testing is only being offered to certain uh, groups of people, and that may be uh, a, part, a part of it. But we still think that based on the data we have and based on more data that's coming out all the time, including among uh, publications, scientific publications of, of cases, that it's still the vast majority of cases are among men. And of those, uh, 98% are still among men who have sex with men. Again, we're concerned about under ascertainment, lack of access to tests, uh, but this is an important finding. And we really try to describe what it is we're seeing in an outbreak. Um, But that doesn't mean that that this group is responsible for the outbreak. It doesn't mean that they should be stigmatized. It's really about offering services where they need to be offered and to whom they need to be offered.
0: This issue of of trying not to stigmatize, it is very much on our mind as health reporters and also on our mind here in Washington, D.C. There was recently an attack, not too far from where I'm sitting, on several gay men who were accused of carrying monkeypox. Uh, They were badly beaten. How do you balance warning gay men that they're at elevated risk of this disease against the fear of inciting hate or even violence?
1: It's certainly been a a tightrope that all public health agencies and all reporters such as yourself have been walking since the beginning of this outbreak. What's critically important is engaging with the communities themselves. So at WHO, we do that at global level. We have regular touchdowns with uh, representatives of uh, LGBTQ associations, uh, various um, groups of you know, people who advise us about the language to use, about the things to talk about, but also those are the same uh, groups that should be contacted at every level, at the, or every uh, level of the response—national, federal, local, community—and so they will tell you. They will tell us. They do tell us. You know, what are the what are the channels of communication that are helpful? What are the messages that are helpful? What are the messages that may actually push people away, which is the last thing we want to do? So, for example, uh, right from the beginning, WHO was working through. Uh, messaging platforms that were not necessarily on the public website to begin with we're putting more and more information on the public website now but at the beginning we were working through uh through meetup through meeting apps uh, grinder and others we were working through uh, associations uh, organizers of, of Pride festivals, again, it's not the Pride festival itself, which is a, a celebration of identity, but the events that may happen on the on the outers, outskirts of a, of a festival. So even today, you know, we're becoming a bit more comfortable talking about situations such as saunas, bathhouses, houses, uh, places where there's sex on premises as part of the activities, because this is where the risk is. As I said before, it's not being gay that represents a risk. It's the activities where one might encounter others who may not even know that they're infected and that they may pose a risk to several people at the same time. And that explains um, why this can behave in the way that it does uh, and, and, and uh, in, in an amplifying manner where you have many cases occurring at the same time from a single large event.
0: Maybe one more question on on the messaging and thinking about reaching the gay community. 40 years ago, HIV was originally seen as a gay man's disease. That's arguably why we missed, or at least a big reason why we missed opportunities to try and stop that disease in its tracks. Now, it's 2022, different virus, different time, but Dr. Lewis, are there vestiges of that legacy with HIV that we are doomed to repeat in some way with monkeypox?
1: People are concerned about that legacy and uh, the concern that uh, mistakes may be made or mistakes are being made. But there are, of course, um, lessons to be learned and advantages. So, for 40 years, people have worked on uh, HIV prevention and control. For 40 years, people have worked on access to antiretroviral therapy. For 40 years, people have worked on on uh, community organization, uh, community engagement, risk communication, and and working with um, with groups of people, uh, including now especially young people who don't have that memory of that of that era 40 years ago so that is the is that that is the positive we build on that and and learn the lessons from uh from the stigmatization of people at that time because at that time uh what happened is, is a lot of it was driven underground that people were you know feeling stigmatized and 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 would not necessarily seek out information i think today what we're really trying to do is provide the information where it needs to be which is those who, for those who are at risk this also includes members, family members, household members. So it's not exclusively men who have sex with men or people who have multiple partners. There can be others who have risk. For example, sex workers or uh, family members uh, of of, uh, people who are just living in the same household or living in in close proximity. and, And these you know, these are situations where people also need to be aware that that others may be at risk. It's not the majority of the situation right now, and it's not something we want everybody to be uh, very worried about, but it's important to, again, appreciate your own risk so that you can lower your own risk.
0: In terms of household members, I believe I read something in The Lancet over this weekend about a uh, pet, pet dog, a greyhound in Europe that contracted monkeypox from its owners. Does the WHO have any more evidence on animals picking it uh, picking up monkeypox from owners? Any transmission that way?
1: So far, no. So this has been a theoretical risk up, up until now. We we know we know all about the prairie dog outbreak, a uh, monkeypox outbreak uh, in in the U.S. linked to prairie dog pets, for example. But there was no um, a, a human to animal transmission during that outbreak. It was all, uh, you know persons who were infected by contact with these new pets that they acquired um, in several states from from a central source and the pets had been infected. So this is the first uh, incident that we are learning about where there is human to animal transmission. Uh, This has not been reported before and it has not been reported that dogs have been infected before. So on a number of levels, this is new information. It's not surprising information and uh, it's something that we've been on the watch out for. So we do have within our own... Ranks. We have people who are experts in One Health and animal health, and working with the organization, World Organization of Animal Health, for example, and the Food and Agriculture Organization through the One Health approach. So we are working very much uh, with those partners to uh, address this. And and so the the messaging that has been given up until now was, you know, that pets should be isolated uh, from their. From the family members who may be infected uh, this has been an example of precautionary uh, approach a precautionary messaging because we didn't have the information that this had ever happened before it had not been reported before um, but it was a reasonable cautious message to give and now we have the first incident, uh, incident where this has actually occurred so again we don't know if that dog can go and transmit the infection to anyone else for example um, but sometimes we as public health professionals we have to even when we don't have the evidence, we have to, you know, work together to figure out what's the most, um, imp- most useful messaging that can that can allow people to appreciate their level of risk. This is an example where most pets will not be at risk. Um, it may only be those who are actually in the household of someone who's infected.
0: Mm. Sounds like we can't blame this outbreak on the prairie dogs. Let's shift to strategies to respond. I wanted to talk a bit about vaccines. There is global demand for what seems to be a limited supply. We saw this during COVID. Some countries were front line, others were waiting much longer. What lessons, Dr. Lewis, can we take away from COVID about prioritizing these limited supplies and how these decisions need to be made?
1: Well, every outbreak is different, as we know, right? So this outbreak is uh, monkeypox is different from COVID-19. Uh, and first of all, we've already discussed about uh, the population groups that are most at risk. So the first thing is that mass vaccination is not recommended for for monkeypox response. There's no reason uh, to support that at the moment, and and. Uh, it's not looking like it's going to change in the immediate future. So the most important thing is to prioritize uh, those vaccines and, and countermeasures and also access to testing and, and other things for those who are most at risk. They should not be the only ones. There may be other circumstances where others uh, may, may need to be um, offered uh, these types of services. But the first thing is that we need to prioritize based on public health need. So the same goes uh, for the global level and for the national level, That. It, Epidemiologists need to be able to follow the outbreak, uh, ascertain what's happening, um, identify who's at risk, and then based on that, identify the best uh, possible strategies based on limited supply. So at the moment, uh, the limited supply is going primarily to persons who are already at high risk. And those include contacts of someone who's infected, as well as others who may be at high risk independently of whether they've already been a contact or not.
0: Doctor, here in the United States, our leaders are moving forward with a plan to split monkeypox vaccine doses into fifths to stretch our supply in a way that they say will allow us to cover more people if necessary. The U.S. government says that strategy is safe. The manufacturer, Bavarian Nordic, says they have safety concerns. I'm curious what you think.
1: Well, this is this vaccine, the one specifically that we're talking about now, we call it MVA, Modified Vaccinia Ankara, because it's it's commercialized under three different names in, in different places, right? It's genius in the U.S., but others may be watching this. It's also known as Invamex in uh, the European Union or in Europe, and it's also known as Invimune in Canada. So it's commercialized under different names. So we just call it MVA. It keeps things uh, simpler. And so this this particular product was developed um, in the intervening period between the eradication of smallpox in 1980 and the, the and now, and so during that period of forty years, there has been a lot of work to develop safer countermeasures. Uh, these vaccines are 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 well understood; they're well known. Uh, they're based on a live virus called vaccinia. Um, this particular version of the of the product, MVABN, is still a live virus, but once it's in the body, it doesn't replicate, so it cannot cause an infection of its own, if you will. And so, from that perspective, this this vaccine is is known to be much safer. Uh, and there's a lot of studies on that. Then uh, the vaccines that were used during smallpox eradication, for example. What's different about this particular approach, and again, there have been, uh, you know, the, the sort of using smaller doses, but in a, an intradermal, in the skin type of injection, as opposed to subcutaneous, which is under the skin. Uh, this is an approach that's already been demonstrated uh, for use in several different um diseases and vaccine products. And it is an approach that has been used when there has been a limited vaccine supply. And the the manufacturer is is, uh, concerned only because, well, they're concerned because it's their product and the studies of intradermal, uh, there's only been really limited studies about intradermal use of this. There was a study, it showed that the immune response generated by the intradermal injection was at least as good as the immune response generated by the subcutaneous injection. Um, but the intradermal injection did cause a bit more redness, a bit more irritation, a bit more pain in the injection site. And so, uh, and so for that, um, certainly the redness and the irritation. And so for that reason, it's like, well, we, it's like everything else in this outbreak. We have some information that we already have and, and we are relying on, and some countries are relying on more than others. And then we also have information that we need to collect. Uh, we need we need to collect we need to do studies and we need to collect the data on. so so if these as these products are being rolled out using new strategies, then it would also be important to embed studies within those um, rollout strategies so that we can learn ourselves whether, you know there is in fact uh, the the same safety profile and there is in fact, um, the same efficacy, effectiveness profile.
0: For those who are watching and would like to ask a question, you can go on Twitter and tweet at post live with your questions just one follow-up there dr lewis how much time how much additional study do you think we need to determine if these vaccines if mva and its various names is effective is this three months six months will we know in a year
1: this will depend on on the types of studies that are done and uh there uh i mean there's every reason to think that these vaccines may be effective because as i said there's a whole history of smallpox eradication and the use of these types of vaccines for this class of viruses called orthopox viruses but we actually don't have specific information whether this particular product is useful in a monkeypox outbreak situation and now we're adding another layer which is changing the mode of administration So uh, it's really important to collect information uh, as we go along. Uh, Some countries may want to already start with randomized controlled trials right from the beginning. Some countries may want to do a range of different types of uh, what we call observational studies where you can't randomize uh, persons to receive vaccine or not, but you can compare different strategies. You could compare subcutaneous with intradermal administration. You could compare, um, you know, MVA, for example, or with another study of MVA plus ACAM 2000 so that the... um, sort of adverse events associated sometimes with ACHM2000 could be reduced by a prior dose of a safer vaccine. There's many different study designs that can be done even as we roll out the product. And so WHO's position is very clear on this, that really this evidence must be collected. Um, at the same time, uh, we we do need to act where action is needed to try and stop this outbreak because the whole world is also um, not immune to orthopoxviruses. Uh, smallpox was eradicated in 1980. And so the vast majority of people around the world, anytime, anyone. Under the age of 40 or 50, depending on the country, will not have immunity to this class of viruses. So both of these actions are critically important, but they also need to be um, linked and embedded uh, in in the response.
0: I am am one of those people who was not vaccinated uh, against the Pox viruses. I I wanted, since we've moved into the evidence section of the conversation, it seems, I wanted to ask a follow-up or two about the course of this virus is there a chance, Dr. Lewis, that monkeypox, which you're in the States, has not been linked to a single confirmed death, that this virus will become more lethal?
1: Well, that's a question that none of us know the answer to. So DNA viruses are known to, this is a very large virus. It's it's lot, one of the largest viruses known. Um, and they're also known to uh, mutate I'm much sorry, more when slowly. I'm
0: you, you sorry, when you say large virus, what do you mean by that? Just the DNA of it?
1: Yeah, the actual size of the of the virus of the virus entity itself. Um, so, for example, there are different sizes, like there's different sizes of almost anything, but there's different sizes of virus. and and uh, this one is the viruses are known to be the largest. Um, but that also it's also because they have a very large DNA um, genome. And, and that genome and a DNA structure mutates much more slowly than, for example, the RNA viruses, which in COVID-19 and in uh, SARS-CoV-2 that we're seeing mutating, and and we're learning about all the different strains that are coming out all the time. We'll also learn the same about the monkeypox virus, um, but it but it's known to mutate more slowly, and so we expect it to mutate more slowly. And so as we're learning about the mutations, that is also something um, that is new information uh, for for pox virologists and public health professionals. Um, just before we continue on that though, there's one thing I do want to say about vaccines, which uh, which we haven't mentioned yet. And, and regarding the evidence that you were asking about and, and we were talking about, and that's that, uh, you know, in this situation about the out- monkeypox outbreak, but also in any situation using any vaccine, it takes time for the body to mount an immune response. So uh, people should not think that because they're vaccinated today, they're protective protected tomorrow. Uh, for the MVA, the uh, and the U.S. has has remained with this strategy of two doses. They've, they've changed the method of administration, but they've remained with the two-dose schedule. So uh, the, the peak immune response arrives two weeks after the second dose. So we're talking, you're, you're waiting for your vaccine, and then you have your first dose, and then you wait four weeks for your second dose, and you still wait two more weeks uh, for, for the uh, immune response to be at peak uh, level two weeks after the second dose. So during this time, so, you know, the person is not protected fully against as fully as the vaccine can offer, which, as we said, is something we don't really know yet. Um, But even during that time, the person is not fully protected um, as they will be um, two weeks after the second dose. So it's it's like with the COVID where we had the, the Swiss cheese strategy, where we had many, many layers of different things that we need to do to protect ourselves and protect others, protect those we love and protect our communities. So this is the same. If someone is very keen to get a vaccine, that is really fantastic. At the same time, they're not going to be able to. They're not going to be protected for several weeks, and their partners will also not be protected during that period of time. So it, it's, it's still important to layer the different modes of of um, uh, prevention and self protection during this period that you're waiting for a vaccine to be effective. I think that's a really important information for for everyone out there who's keen to get a vaccine.
0: Right, Where wear the raincoat and also carry the umbrella at times when you need it. It's, been An free. <laughs> it's free. You can have it. What What is the World Health Organization's plan, Dr. Lewis, if this virus does become permanently entrenched in dozens of countries outside of West and Central Africa, where it had historically been found? Will Will the WHO recommend uh, routine vaccination, as you did in decades past with smallpox?
1: Well, this is early days yet. So, as we said, we have a lot to learn about this virus. We have a lot to learn about the way it's transmitting. We have a lot to learn about the the outbreaks themselves, are they going to settle down? Are are we going to be able to go back to zero cases? Um, But the future is going to look different from the past. And that's because, uh, as I said, worldwide, um, the immunity gap is there now. This includes in parts of the world where the virus or different variants of it do circulate in animals. And so there will always also be the zoonotic aspect of it, right? So there will be the zoonotic spillovers where people can become infected through various activities, um, you know, with hunting or or uh, trapping animals that may have an infection. So that's one aspect of it. So it's not going to go away. It's been there since uh, the 1970s, and that part of it is not going to go away. But in addition, we now have human-to-human transmission, um, you know, Pretty efficient human-to-human transmission based on the activities that bring people into close proximity, skin-to-skin contact, uh, penetrative sex. Uh, these are all activities that that bring people into into a situation where they might encounter the virus. And so the virus has found a home where it's efficiently transmitting. And and uh, because many of the cases—not all—many of the cases uh, still manifest with fewer lesions or fewer systemic. Uh, symptoms such as fever, for example, uh, then it may be that in some situation the virus can continue to transmit um, without being detected. And this, this, so once countries now are putting in place surveillance systems for for monkeypox, uh, unfortunately, it's going to be likely that they're going to need to keep those surveillance and detection and response mechanisms in place until we really understand better what the future is going to look like.
0: Whether it's COVID, monkeypox, other zoonotic illnesses it seems like there's a new outbreak every few months linked to animals essentially dr lewis do you think climate change is accelerating uh, these viral threats
1: well this certainly has been postulated to be one of the reasons uh, that uh, zoonotic uh, diseases are um, encroaching more in human populations but also human populations are encroaching more on their habitats Right, so so as as uh, cities grow bigger, there's urbanization. People move from rural areas into cities, and people from rural areas, uh, sorry, from, from urban areas, as the cities get larger and larger, encroach on natural habitats where animals uh, no longer have enough space to live. For example, I mean I, I'm generalizing, but but this is uh, certainly one of the features that is uh, that is a, a well recognized component of one health. And that uh, a comprehensive approach needs to look at all of the aspects, including climate change, including urbanization, including uh, land use, including protection of uh, wildlife um, habitats. And, and these are all things that uh, and, and, and for people to again, it's it's about information and awareness and, uh, and what kinds of activities are bringing us into contact. It's not only wildlife. Uh, It's also agriculture, right? So um, animals and viruses that that affect uh, um, flocks or, or, um, you know, large agricultural operations can also pose risks uh, to people.
0: Dr. Lewis, last question and and maybe the minute left. WHO had been looking at renaming the monkeypox virus for fear of stigma, looking at renaming the specific uh, clades within. Can you just give a quick update on that work
1: Sure. So last uh, week there was a meeting uh, convened by WHO, but it was a meeting of experts to discuss the names of the clades of the monkeypox virus, because that is the work of um, orthopox virologists and evolutionary biologists who uh, gathered uh, in a space created by WHO so that they could have this conversation. And they recommended changing the names of the, updating the names of the clades from Congo Basin and Central African clade to clade one, from West African clade to clade two. So this is this is the recommendation of the science, scientists that attended that meeting, and and WHO has facilitated that work. Um, the second part about the virus itself is the work of uh, the International Committee on Taxonomy of Viruses. This is not a WHO committee. There's been some uh, reporting over the weekend, um, you know, that can that can look to clarify some of these issues, and and this is a, a separate committee. It's it they take care of virus um, species and virus taxonomy separate from WHO. And then the WHO is responsible for naming of diseases. We saw that in COVID-19, this was done quite quickly. And this is because mm-hmm. it was a new disease and the disease didn't exist before. Uh, for diseases that have existed, we have the international classification of diseases. And so we are, uh, we have launched a mechanism. Uh, the platform has been open for two months now. Uh, we hear a lot of concerns. We don't hear a lot of proposals. We are now beginning to receive proposals on the platform and these will be assessed according to their scientific validity, their acceptability, their uh, pronounceability, um, whether they can be used in different languages. And uh, there is a part of the organization that is not the emergency program uh, that leads on that work. And so we work with our colleagues and uh, that process is underway. And so any suggestions uh, that people do have for the new name for Monkeypox in any language should be and can be submitted to the platform uh, created for that. Well, it's, it's there for that purpose.
0: Well, you, you heard that here. So, Dr. Lewis, we are out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we appreciate your work at the World Health Organization. Hope you'll come back soon. Okay. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.